0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: Ever wondered what monetary policy is? Who's in charge of the national debt? Or why BRIC countries should concern you? Well, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome to It's the Economy, a new podcast series brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Nicola Walton, and I'm not an economist, but I do think it's important that economics is accessible. The economy impacts every aspect of our lives, from how we work to where we live. But how much do we really understand about how big economic concepts and decisions affect us? In this podcast, I'll be breaking down complex economic ideas, so in the time it takes to have a cup of coffee, you'll understand what they mean and why they matter to us. In each episode, I'll be joined by an economics expert to talk us through it all. This week, we're looking at labour, and my guest is Susanna Streeter, a Senior Investment and Markets Analyst with Hargreaves Lansdowne. Welcome to the podcast, Susanna. Great to be here, Nicola. So let's start with definitions. What do we mean by labour, employment and unemployment? Well, employment is an agreement
2: between an employer and an employee that the employee will provide certain services. In return, the employee is paid a salary or an hourly wage. Now, unemployment is defined as a situation where someone of working age isn't able to get a job but would like to be in full-time employment. So if a mother left work to bring up a child or a father did, or if someone went into higher education, they're not working, but they wouldn't be classed as unemployed because they're not actively seeking employment. But there is a grey area, and that's a voluntary unemployment. Now, this occurs when the unemployed choose not to take a job for a number of reasons, such as the going wage rate could be too low. And uh, they could be counted as unemployed because even though they're still seeking a job, they just don't want to take one that they're being offered.
1: And I've noticed that some countries have introduced the idea of a minimum wage and a living wage like Japan and Canada. So what's the difference between the two and, and why are they used?
2: The living wage is a voluntary rate employers can sign up to that's based on the real cost of living. But the minimum wage is the legal minimum that you must be paid per hour. So the minimum that governments have passed legislation to ensure that you are. But it's interesting how this is developed in the UK, for example, because the government now calls the minimum wage for employees who are over 25 the living wage. But in fact, it's not linked to living costs. But um, that's why there is some kind of uh, confusion at times over what's really a living wage and what is the minimum wage. So now campaigners here in the UK calling for a wage which is linked to living costs have dubbed it the real living wage.
1: Each week, we look at a historical example of this episode's theme, in this case, labour. My producer, Lovejeet Dhaliwal, has been looking at the Windrush generation, who migrated from the Caribbean to fill Britain's labour gap and help rebuild the economy after the Second World War.
3: After World War II, Britain was desperately short of the labour force it needed to rebuild its weakened economy. It needed workers in iron, steel and coal production, Workers were also needed to run essential services like public transport and to staff the newly established National Health Service, the NHS. But the working population had fallen by nearly 1.4 million at the end of the war, as married women and older people left jobs they had filled in during the war effort. People were also leaving Britain and emigrating to the old Commonwealth, to countries like Australia, New Zealand and Canada. To fill the labour gap, the government turned towards the citizens of the new Commonwealth. These were the recently decolonised countries in the former British Empire. Thousands of men and women from Caribbean countries answered Britain's call and were known as the Windrush generation after the ship they were brought on. Between 1948 and 1970, nearly half a million people left their homes in the West Indies to live in the UK. They took up jobs in manufacturing, construction and public transport, and many Caribbean women became nurses in the NHS. But racism meant that despite labour shortages, some still found it difficult to find good jobs. Despite facing challenges, the Windrush generation helped to rebuild the British economy, and the legacy of their contributions is still felt today. So Susanna,
1: as we've just heard, labour can be sourced from other countries, But those immigrants may still have to deal with discrimination and racism. In more recent times, have you seen similar examples? Perhaps in the UK, for example, Eastern European fruit pickers?
2: Well, actually, there were cases of uh, discrimination and some hate crimes which seemed to erupt around the time of the Brexit referendum, because there was such a focus on immigration during that referendum campaign. In fact, it was highlighted by the United Nations, in fact, that some of the uh, rhetoric uh, surrounding some of those campaigns really was at the root cause of uh, some of that hate crime.
1: But we've seen during the pandemic estimates of as much as 700,000 people leaving the UK. So is that likely to have an impact in the future, do you think?
2: It's likely to have an impact. If there aren't enough people and there are more vacancies, which is what appears to be happening as we come out of the coronavirus crisis, employers uh, would be
1: forced to offer higher wages as a result. So are campaigns to recruit skilled workers from abroad still in use today? Yes, they
2: absolutely are. Let's uh, take the National Health Service, for example, in the UK. And international recruitment is part of the NHS's long-term plan to try and ensure that the service has the staff it needs. And although homegrown uh, supply of health and social care staff is increasing. Uh, there certainly needs to be recruitment campaigns abroad. And interestingly, last year, recruiters went to countries like India, the Philippines, and, and also uh, the United Arab Emirates to try and recruit nurses. But this year, because of infection rates around the world and the fact that lots of countries are still on a red list, the only country in which uh, those NHS recruiters can really target workers right now is the Philippines. But interestingly, at the same time, um, there are migration campaigns being run within countries For example, thousands of Australians are being lured with uh, free flights, cheap accommodation and even lump sums of cash to try and take a job in the Sunshine State's tourism sector. The Queensland government has launched the Work in Paradise initiative. That's what the campaign is dubbed, to try and fill 4,000 empty uh, vacancies.
1: And so, Susanna, how do these migration patterns affect the home and the recipient economies?
2: There are concerns that there's a brain drain. Interestingly, when you look at the Filipino nurses example, the fact that the UK is going to the Philippines at the moment to try and recruit nurses to fill gaps in the National Health Service, the Philippines aren't too happy about this because they are grappling with their own COVID crisis and need to retain as many workers in their National Health Service as possible. So they have put a cap on numbers. There are also concerns that... um, Uh, money could be leaving the country uh, if there is this brain drain. But interestingly, when you look at the numbers of remittances um, that um, skilled workers who move abroad send back, it's absolutely huge, very crucial for certain economies. Uh, For example, in Kenya, uh, remittances rose in March this year by 27% year on year to 290 million. And in 2020, Uh, remittances rose 11% to $3 billion. And so you can really see how that money being sent back from workers overseas can help their families and also uh, the economies back home.
1: So moving countries is one way of finding employment. But recently, something called the gig economy has sprung up. So tell us more about that.
2: So remember that definition of employment earlier. Employment is an agreement between an employer and an employee that an employee will provide certain services and in return an employee will get a salary or hourly wage. Now traditionally this has been on long-term contracts but the gig economy is a labour market that's characterised by the prevalence of short-term contracts or freelance work or contractor status as opposed to permanent jobs. Is the gig economy a new way of working? Well, actually, you could argue that in the manufacturing sector, it's been around for centuries as what's known as piecework, a type of employment where a worker is paid a fixed price for each unit produced in the guild system of the 16th century, for example, and the British factory system of the Industrial Revolution. The number of pieces produced by a worker were counted as it was easier than accounting for the worker's time. So in a way, it's been around a long time. But as technology has advanced, the gig economy has really emerged with a vengeance once again with the likes of Deliveroo, the delivery company paying riders who sign up via an app per delivery rather than per hour. But the model is coming under question, Uh, for example, through the courts, because some uh, workers are saying actually they do believe that they should have employment status because rather than um, being employed, obviously, by the hour, they're only employed by the gig. But they say that um, it's very difficult for them to refuse work, for example. And so we have had certain challenges through the courts. Some have been successful,
1: some haven't. Stat of the Week Now it's time for our Stat of the Week. Each week, we'll be bringing you a figure that's often quoted in the press and seen as a key indicator of the health of the overall economy. This week, our stat is the unemployment rate. According to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, South Africa has one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, at nearly 30%. So, what's behind this figure? Well, it does
2: actually show that the unemployment rate for young people as well, this figure does, actually was 63%. So really, really high, many more uh, younger people out of work. And there are many factors thought to be behind this figure, legacy of apartheid, and also poor education and training. So the deliberate exclusion of black people from the educational system has had a real knock on effect
1: through the years. And haven't we also seen actually in some countries where there's been very high youth unemployment, that's led to political unrest even and pressure on the government.
2: Governments do get extremely concerned when there is sustained levels of youth unemployment because um, it's been shown in history that um, high levels of youth unemployment can lead to political unrest and even uprisings.
1: That was Start of the Week, and this week we were looking at the unemployment rate. Now, Susanna, people do adapt to a changing labour market, as we've seen in our discussions about the gig economy. In the future, I'm assuming that people will just have to get much more up to speed with digital skills.
2: Yes, this is an issue that many uh, countries are grappling with at the moment, that the fact that there's a skills gap in many economies Companies are really racing to invest in digitizing uh, the ways of working, whether it's boosting e-commerce capacity, uh, switching to advanced payment systems, or even using artificial intelligence and machine learning to try and improve manufacturing quality. But the thing is, to keep up with that demand and this acceleration, you need to recruit people with the skills to match. And that is a real issue that uh, countries are trying to solve right now.
1: But isn't there also a concern with more automation and things like AI that some jobs will actually become obsolete?
2: Inevitably, jobs
1: are going to be lost on a mass scale, but other jobs will be created, jobs that we perhaps
2: haven't even uh, got the name for right now.
1: Now, during the pandemic, we've seen people working in, in lots of different ways, a lot working from home. How do you think things will pan out in the future?
2: I started a new job uh, during the pandemic, and I've only met uh, my colleagues virtually. Just a handful I've actually had a face-to-face meeting with. However, it's worked, and I think companies are realising that homeworking can work. It's not right for all employees because certainly human nature is to mix and interact. There's a new generation of workers who've only ever worked remotely, Now, we're not going to stay exactly where we are today, but there is just no way the world is going to go back to exactly how
1: it was. But as you touched on there, if employers can recruit from anywhere, isn't there a danger that they're only going to go to the places where the wages are lower?
2: That could be a potential risk, but also they won't just be recruiting on wage alone. They'll be wanting to find those uh, employees with the right
1: skills across the board Susanna Streeter, thank you for joining us for this podcast. It's been great to chat, Nicola. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review It's the Economy on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. I'm Nicola Walton, and you've been listening to It's the Economy, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. This podcast was produced by Lovejeet Dhaliwal, with technical assistance from Mark Roberts and Catherine Hughes. The executive producer was Farah Jasset.
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing...